0: We start with uh, verse 16 of chapter 5, Galatians. It says, that I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the, for the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, Here are our key verses. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another envying one another. Let's pray. Father God, as we come and open this scripture before our, on our laps tonight, we just ask that you would speak to us. Uh, Lord, as we begin to uh, study together about you, we pray that you would do exactly uh, what you do, which is open our eyes of understanding, uh, enlighten your word before us, Lord, teach us your way, guide us into all truth. Lord, anoint and empower us to hear and to do, to apply, to obey the truth that you have for us tonight. God, we do believe that you have a word from heaven for us as we study together. And we ask this for your name's sake and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So why fruit? Why would the writer use fruit as the metaphor here? Well, in the Bible, fruit is used in various contexts. Uh, We find it used literally. And so that which is produced by trees or plants, which both serves as food and contains seed for reproduction. So you hear about figs and grapes and pomegranates and all kinds of fruit within the Bible. You also hear it used metaphorically. And so you hear things as in uh, the fruit of the womb, meaning human offspring, or outcomes or results as in the fruit of one's labor. And then you see spiritual aspects. Most of the uses of fruit uh, are spiritual in nature. They're communicating some spiritual truth. Uh, There's some that are really directly spiritually uh, uh, applied, one being symbolism. Uh, Israel is uh, referred to as a vineyard uh, in the book of Isaiah, as Israel is referred to as a, fig, as a fig tree in the book of Luke. Uh, it's shown as a sign of growth and maturity. You remember um, uh, Jesus' parable of the sower, or really the parable of the soils, really. Uh, and, and depending on the condition of the soil would determine how much fruit uh, the believer would produce. Uh, we remember Psalm 1, And he, he who meditates on the word of the Lord day and night shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of, the, of water, who brings forth his fruit in his season? And then we know that uh, we use fruit for evidence and identification. Uh, I am not uh, a botanist. I don't have a green thumb. Um, I really don't have a green thumb. You know, people come and see my grass They say, "Oh man, your grass is, just looks great. Looks great." I say, "Yeah, I pay for that." <laughs> you know, I have no, no. I mean, if you go to Pastor Tim's and you see that grass, oh man, it is beautiful beautiful, but he knows how to do that stuff. I don't know how to do it. I just pay somebody else to do it. So I, I cut it and water it. That's all I need to do. But whenever I do try, really try, to do something, you know, with my trees or my bushes or something, and I go to Cross Creek and I say, hey, I've got this problem. I've got a, a, a bush that's just growing like crazy. I don't know what to do. First thing they say is, bring me a leaf. You know, because the people who really know, all they need is a leaf. But for amateurs like me, I need to see the fruit. Right? You won't know what kind of tree or what kind of plant it is until you see the fruit. It removes all doubt as to what kind of plant it is. And so it begs the question here, if we're talking about the fruit in terms of evidence, and we know Jesus said that you will know them by their fruit, right? And in our study tonight, we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit. Well, if we're talking about the fruit and referring to it as the product or the outcome or the evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, then it begs the question, what does the Holy Spirit do? If it's the fruit of the Spirit and it's the product of what he's doing, then what does he do? And so from the lips of Jesus himself, I just listed here what Jesus told to the disciples uh, when he began to uh, describe the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and you can just uh, look at those with me there, he said that uh, the Holy Spirit would abide with us forever. He called him the Comforter, or the Paraclete, or the Helper. He said he will abide with us forever, John 14:6. He said he will dwell with us and be in each one of us, John 14, 17. He said that the Holy Spirit would teach us all things and bring Everything to remembrance the things that Jesus has said, John 14:26. He said that the Holy Spirit would testify of Christ, 15:26. He would convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. John 15:8 through11. said that he would guide us into all truth, and that he would tell us the things to come, John 16:13. He said that he would glorify Christ. John 16:14, and finally, before he was ascended into heaven, he told them to stay in Jerusalem until you are imbued with power from on high. And he said that after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will be, you will have power to be my witnesses. So, in Acts chapter one, verse eight, we would be empowered to be Christ's witnesses. So, the fruit of the Spirit here is the product—not only the product, what is produced by the Holy Spirit—but it's also the evidence the external evidence of the internal work of the Holy Spirit. Now, we see here in our text in uh, uh, chapter 5 of Galatians, verses 16 uh, through the end of the chapter, we see this distinction that's being drawn here uh, between the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of the flesh. We see it clearly in verse 16, walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And you see as these, as this passage progresses through, you see the the. the The contrast between the fruit of the Spirit and the work of the flesh. And as we see, both are always active. You always have the Holy Spirit at work, and you always have the flesh in some measure at work. Because you all know as well as I do that sin, although sin no longer reigns, it yet remains. Right? It yet remains. And see, this duality is found throughout the New Testament. You see in Romans chapter 6 verses, uh, uh, Romans chapter 6 through 8, that is well worth your study to you go through chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8. Chapter 6 has the standard, right? The standard of walking in grace, standard of holiness. Chapter 7, and Paul goes through how he has failed in the flesh to try to keep the law, try to keep the, law, uh, keep the commandments of God. And then chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, right? To those who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit, right? So that's a, uh, that's a, you see that, that duality. You see that conflict uh, throughout those chapters. Uh, James chapter 3, he talks about the tongue. The tongue is something that no man can tame. He says, will bitter and sweet come from the same faucet, from the same fountain? right?" So you see this back and forth, this battle, this conflict and tension between the Holy Spirit and his work that he desires to do and the flesh, and how Satan wants to use our flesh to do his will. We even see it here in the book of Galatians. In chapter 2, if you just turn the page back, uh, Galatians 2.20, this is one of the great declarations of faith, but it's also one of the great paradoxes. It's amazing when you see it. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I'm dead. I've been crucified, but I live. So dead and alive. And, oh, by the way, Christ now lives in me. And then he says this, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. Look at that paradox. I didn't notice it until until I was preparing for this. He says, I live in the flesh, and I live by faith. Can anybody testify with that? Anybody get an amen on that? I live in the flesh, and I live by faith. It happens in my life. I'm sure it happens in yours. We live in this same reality. We live in the flesh, right? We are prone to many of the same old temptations, the same old habits, the same old stumbling blocks that we experienced before we came uh, to Christ. And then we also live by faith in this realization in our new life in Christ and the experience of the Holy Spirit's sanctifying work in us. And so we see this contrast. And so that takes us to our first topic. And no sense in changing a good thing. Pastor Tim, he does his three points, and he has a slide for each point. So I'm following my teacher. So let's look at fruit in contrast, versus starting at verse 16. You see that Paul unpacks this dichotomy or, or this, uh, this duality uh, in these verses here. And starting at 16, he says, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Now this word walk or walk in is, uh, is a Greek word that, mean, that means to live in, peripateo, to live in, not peripotatoes, peripateo, <laughs> live in, let your whole life be directed by the spirit is what he's saying. Let your entire life be directed by the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now this shall not is not like shall not. This is like, this is a double negative, right? The, the Greek is, is ume. It's, it's It says no, not ever. It, that's what he's saying. You will not ever fulfill the lust of the flesh. In no way will you fulfill the lust of the flesh. That, that's bold. Walk in the Spirit And in no way, not at all, will you fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, that's kind of confusing because, I mean, let's be real. That's not always true in my life, is it? That's not true in your life all the time, is it? But this is what Paul is saying. This is the word of the Lord, so it's got to be true. So if we live in and let our whole life be directed by the Holy Spirit we will not in any way fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Here's what Andrew Murray says in Absolute Surrender, and I've got the quote up here if you can read it with me. He says this. He says, I have so often been asked by young Christians, why is it that I fail so? I did so solemnly vow with my whole heart and did desire to serve God. Why have I failed? To such I always give the one answer, my dear friend, You are trying to do in your own strength what Christ alone can do in you. And when they tell me, I'm sure I knew Christ alone could do it, I was not trusting in myself, my answer always is, you were trusting in yourself, or you could not have failed. Man, that's powerful. If you had trusted Christ, he could not fail. So if, if verse 16 is not working for us, it's not because the verse doesn't work. Okay? Just, let's just be real. If, if, verse, if any verse in this Bible doesn't work for us, it's not because the verse doesn't work. It's because we're not following it. It's because we're not walking in it. There's some deficiency in our obedience and application of the word. And see, we see this conflict as it continues to, 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 to unfold. Let's look at verse 17. For the flesh lusts against the, uh, against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. Now I have the, uh, the Living Bible Translation. It says, For we naturally love to do evil things that are just the opposite from the things that the Holy Spirit tells us to do. And the good things we want to do when the Spirit has His way... With us, are just the opposite of our natural desires. These two forces within us are constantly fighting each other to win control over us. And get this our wishes are never free from their pressures. Our wishes are never free from their pressures. See, the battle is the mind, the mind is the battlefield, right? It's the Holy Spirit and it's Satan fighting over our will. Will I obey the word of God or will I obey the lusts and desires of my flesh? We see a parallel in Romans chapter 7. You don't have to turn there, but verses 22 and 23, again, verse, uh, chapter 7 is Romans is uh, Paul's struggle against or struggle to obey and fulfill the law because of the weakness of the flesh. He says in verse 22 of chapter 7, Romans, he says, For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the sin which is in my members. So you have this cosmic conflict taking place in each and every one of our minds. Let's look at 18. He says, But if you are led of the Spirit, you are not under the law. This is interesting. We're seeing a conflict, a contrast, not only between the flesh, uh, the the spirit and the flesh, but now we see the spirit and the law. Now don't miss this reference to the law right here in the middle of the contrast between the flesh and the spirit. Now, we do know that the whole context of the book of, of Galatians, Paul is addressing the church's backsliding from the teaching of the of the grace of God by faith to obeying the Mosaic law. Right? He said, having begun in the Spirit, will you be made perfect in the flesh. So he is, he's going after this, this new teaching that's infiltrating the church once again, saying you have to go back and be circumcised. So it's not a surprise to see it, but it's interesting to have it right here sandwiched in between this discussion on the flesh versus the Spirit and then the, fruit of the, 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 the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit, and then you just have this law just dropped right in the middle of it. Don't miss that. Because the answer to the problem, our flesh, is not in the law. It's not in legalism. I mean, we don't follow the Mosaic law, but we have some laws, right? We can get legal on, on, on one another, right? The things that we'd like to see that are, you know, why do, why do they dress like that? And why do they do like that? And the, the, the effort in our own flesh to try to measure up to a standard, first of all, that God doesn't even require in some cases, Right? So pulling up ourselves by our own bootstraps, trying harder to live right. This is not, our, it's not us again. Remember, remember Andrew Murray. He says, if you had trusted in God, you would not have failed because you trusted in yourself. It's by surrendering to and being led by the Holy Spirit. In other words, it is the action of the Spirit internally, not the actions of our own deeds externally that enable us, as verse 16 said, not to fulfill lusts of the flesh. And we read through the list of the works of the flesh, which are evident, it says, and I'm not going to go through them again. But I tell you, it's it's easy. When I first went through that list uh, years ago, and even in my study today, uh, for today, it's easy to go through that list and say, whew, man, thank God that's not me. You know, I can't remember the last time I, you know, committed adultery, you know, and last time I had a drink, my goodness. You know, so It's easy to look at that list and say, well, that's not me. I'm good. But don't miss the and the like in verse 21. See, this is not an exhaustive list, is it? See, there are many other sins and weights that hinder our walk, and the flesh is always at work behind these as well. For example, pride, unthankfulness, bitterness, anxiety, judgmentalism. And the list goes on and all, doesn't it? And see, these respectable sins, you know, they're respectable, right? They're not the blue-collar sins. These are the white-collar sins. Okay? <laughs> they may be more subtle than what we see in this list. Although, I mean, i got to tell you, idolatry is for real. It really is. You can worship your job. You can worship your kids. You can worship your ministry in church, you can place that before the Lord. I mean, some of these, they'll trip you up. I mean, he, uh, Hebrews 12 is for real. You know, lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Easily. Amen. Yeah. That's right, Saoirse. <laughs> I will come into your reading uh, a book by Jerry Bridges uh, that is entitled Respectable Sins. If you haven't read it, it is worth your money and your time to read that book because it goes into those types of things, right? It's not the hardcore blue-collar sins, but the white sins. The sins that we tolerate, the sins that we accept, it's worth your read. Uh, Also, um, Absolute Surrender is a knockout. you got to get that book. Every believer should have that in their library. So again, more homework. You're welcome. So verse 21 It closes with those who practice these things, and the practice there is to continually, habitually continue doing it with no repentance, ignoring the conviction of the Holy Spirit, says that they shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And so this is not a one-time stumble. This is not a, oh, my goodness, I got caught up. This is to continue and continue. And again, it goes for the respectable sins as well as the ugly sins. So we have to be very mindful of the effect of the flesh in our lives. If you keep your hand uh, at Galatians and turn to uh, Romans chapter 8, I want to take a quick look at a parallel, another parallel scripture uh, that goes right in line with our reading here tonight. And I referred to this earlier. And beginning at verse 1, it says, "There is Therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of Christ, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Made me free from the law of sin and death. And look at verse 3. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh. Weak through the flesh. There it is. So God has a standard, and my flesh is weak, and I cannot live up to God's standard. Our efforts, once again, to keep the law in the arm of the flesh fail. It says what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk. There's that word again. Pair of potatoes, according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. Now that set your minds on it literally means to obsess over, or to pursue with all might and determination. So those who live according to the flesh obsess over the flesh. They pursue it with all might and determination. The things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit obsess over and pursue with almighty determination the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. And that, that's a whole study there. Enmity is more than being an enemy. It is the bitterest of enemies against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. This is actually the inverse of what we just read in in Galatians 5.16. It says, walk in the spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. He says here in Romans that if I'm following the carnal mind, walking in the flesh, I cannot obey the law of God. I cannot obey the will of God. Right? They are mutually exclusive. In verse 8, so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And if you skip down to verse 13, it says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, there it is, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. Who's putting to death the deeds of the body? We are. Are we doing it in our, our own strength? No, we're not. See, we have to work and cooperate with the Holy Spirit. If by the Spirit I put to death the deeds of the body, I will live. And we see that it lines straight up with our passage for tonight in Galatians. Let's look at fruit now as evidence. So just as the workers of the flesh are evident in verse 19, going back to Galatians 5, it's also possible to clearly see the work of the Holy Spirit upon Our lives as believers. As we continue to walk in the Spirit, relying upon His work and not trusting in our own efforts to overcome the desires of the flesh, the evidence of His work will become more and more recognizable in our lives. Not perfectly. And Pastor Tim always says that we will not hear, thou good and perfect servant, when we stand before the Lord. He's not looking for perfection, he's looking for faithfulness. So, not perfectly, but authentically. That's the thing. We want to see an authentic work of the Spirit of God in our lives. Lord, I want you to do an authentic work in my life. I don't want to fake it till I make it or learn how to go through the motions or learn how to play church. You all know my testimony. I did that for many, many years. I never want to go back to that. Right? But we want to see an authentic work of the Holy Spirit, a consistent work of the Holy Spirit. And, in, and a, whole, a work that is increasing in measure as time goes on. That's what we're looking for. Here's a quote. It's pretty long, and I didn't put it on the slide. I want you to listen to this, though. This is uh, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, another book you need to get. So you have signed three books now, okay? <laughs> three books you've got to get and read them. So he says this. He says, some, as I have admitted, are still hardly recognizable. He's talking about believers, He's talking about the the work of the Holy Spirit and the evidence of that work in the lives of believers. That's what he says. He says, some, as I've admitted, are still hardly recognizable, but others can be recognized. He says, every now and then one meets them. Their very voices and faces are different from ours. Stronger, quieter, happier, more radiant. They begin where most of us leave off. They are, I say, recognizable, but you must know what to look for. They will not be very like the idea of religious people, which you have formed from your general reading. They do not draw attention to themselves. You tend to think that you're being kind to them when they are really being kind to you. They love you more than other men do, but they need you less. Hmm. They will usually seem to have a lot of time and you will wonder where it comes from. When you recognize one of them, and you will recognize the next one much more easily. And I strongly sus- suspect, but how should I know, that they recognize one another immediately and infallibly across every barrier of color, sex, class, age, and even of creeds. In that way, to become holy is rather like joining a secret society. He just kind of and that's one of the reasons I love this book because he makes it so plain his examples are so like elementary you could read that book to your children and your children would really understand because he uses such plain language and that's, that's the truth that's how it looks we, a believer in the Holy Spirit is, is, is at work in their life they don't draw attention to themselves right they do love you more even though they need you less they just show love as a matter of fact love is Is mine. I'm I'm teaching on love tonight. So (laughs) they showed you love, right? So here we're not talking, I just want to make sure we understand, we'll make a point here, that we're not talking about the gifts of the Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit are distributed on an individual basis by the will of the Spirit. This is not a unique endowment for a few. This is what God expects to be, the common experience for all true believers. This description, these fruit that we just read... The Lord expects this to be our common experience, and just like you said, you know, we'll, we see it in one another. How, how, have you been somewhere and you, see, and you meet somebody you've never never met them before? You don't know who they are, and you just can tell. Oh, that's a believer. That's a believer, not a church person. <laughs> that's a believer, man. It's like you go to a different country we, when, when we went on, on the mission trip. You just you can see a believer. Don't even you can't, don't have to speak the language. You can tell. You can tell. That's a powerful work of the Holy Spirit. It cannot be duplicated in any way. Not truly. So, like fruit in the natural sense, the fruit of the Spirit, three things here, nourishes others. Right? There's nothing like a sweet, crisp apple or those sweet, juicy grapes there's nothing like it. And it's one of the only sugars that's actually good for you. Right? You want to get your sugar intake? Eat fruit. You know, any dietician or doctor will tell you. If you want to get your sugar intake and not let it go crazy, eat fruit. Right? So it nourishes others. And the others is the, is the neat thing here because the, the term one another is found 54 times in the epistles alone. You know, we're to love one another, pray for one another. Right? We bear one another's burdens. So it nourishes others. Fruit in the natural nourishes those who eat it. The Holy Spirit fruit nourishes others as we live for others. It also reproduces itself. As we said earlier, in the literal sense, the fruit contains the seed, which is the key to reproducing. And the Holy Spirit, through his work in our lives, reproduces by our lives becoming a witness which brings others to Christ. C.S. Lewis calls it good infection. It's good infection. You know, rub off on somebody. Oh, you caught it. Ah. <laughs> right? And number three, it's produced not through works, but only by abiding. We remember Jesus' words in John chapter 15. He says, abide in me and I in you. Right? As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me that's the key again you know we can't rely on this flesh right the hymn said the hymn stand up stand up for jesus you know you dare not fight your own the arm of flesh will fail you yes it will the arm of flesh will fail you you dare not fight on your own amen all right we're going to wrap this up so fruit in essence Go down to verse 22. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. And this word fruit, it's interesting. Paul doesn't say the fruits of the Spirit are. He doesn't say plural. He literally uses the singular word here. The singular Greek word, karpos. This is a singular word. He's not saying that there are nine fruits. He's saying there's one fruit. And this is purposeful. Many scholars say that it represents the unity of the Spirit. I do agree. I think that, that theologically it does agree. If we, if we look at uh, Isaiah chapter 11, the sevenfold Spirit of God, uh, we see it again in Revelation chapter 1. And we see the, the, the multiple facets of the work of the Holy Spirit all encapsulated into the Holy Spirit. And so I think that it does represent in many ways the unity of the Holy Spirit. But I think that there may be something else there. I think that he may be pointing and zeroing in on love in this case. Because really, if you, if you look at it, and I'm sure as, as my brothers uh, share on the other fruit of the Spirit, you will probably hear them say a lot about love as they're going through their their, their sharing as well. Because really, if you look at it, all these other fruit describe love in action. Right? What does love look like? right? You have peace, and you have joy, and you suffer long, and you suffer long, and you suffer long when you really love someone, right? So I think, I think that there's something here that we don't want to miss. And, and Luther actually said, uh, it would have been enough to mention only the single fruit of love, for love embraces all the fruits of the Spirit. And so I'd like to direct your attention to this. So if we look at the love chapter, which, as we all know, is, is 1 Corinthians 13, I think you'll find an uncanny connection between these descriptions of love and the fruit of the Spirit. It's really uncanny. So if you, if you look at it at verses 4 through 7 of 1 Corinthians 13, it says, love suffers long. Is that a fruit? Right? Long-suffering, patience, forbearance. Love is kind. Is that a fruit? But look at what it is. Love is doing this. Love is doing this. Love is doing this. Right? Love does not envy. It does not boil over with jealousy. And that's goodness. And and the, the Greek word for goodness here is actually a word that means generosity. It implies generosity. So not just good. I'm good. I'm, I'm generous. So you can't be envious and generous, right? And if you look at it, does not parade itself, is not puffed up, is not prideful, is not boastful. And one of the fruit is meekness or gentleness, humility, does not behave rudely, does not dishonor others, is not indecent. That sounds like self-control. Does not seek his own, is not selfish, is not self-seeking. Again, there's that generosity, thinking of others above ourselves. Love is not provoked, it's not irritable. There's that kindness again, gentleness. Thinks no evil. Now that's, a, that's a tricky word, that's why I had to explain it there. There's no record of wrong, logizomai, it's an accounting word. It does not apply to someone's account. So thinks no evil, does not apply evil to to someone's account, does not hold a record of wrongs done. That's peace, being peaceful, being a peacemaker. Love rejoices in truth. There's joy and gladness. And then love bears and believes and hopes and endures all things. I think that's faithfulness. I believe that the Lord is showing us a parallel harmony between 1 Corinthians 13 and Galatians chapter 5, where you really could say that the fruit of the Spirit is love, which is demonstrated by joy and peace and longsuffering and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and temperance. Against such there is no law. Isn't that neat? I've never seen that, but that is so awesome. So we're going to wrap up here and um, just briefly go... Over the love part, because I think that um, again, as our, as our brothers come and share over the next uh, couple weeks through December and January, we're going to learn a lot more, and all of it's going to continue to flash back to love. Um, but just really briefly, there are four Greek words for love there's eros, which is romantic or sensual love, uh, there's phileo, which is brotherly love, which is really awesome. When you, when you think of uh, John 21, remember when uh, Jesus was restoring Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me? And he says, oh, Lord, you know that I love you. Oh, those poor English people, they did not use the proper <coughs> Greek. Jesus said, do you agape me? And Peter says, Lord, you know I phileo you. It literally says this. I mean, this, I mean you know, we say it. And when we read it, it says love, and Peter says, yeah, I love you. And Jesus says, do you love me? And says, yeah, I love you. And you know, But no, it is so much deeper than that. Jesus says, do you agape me? Do you agape me, Peter? This is the same Peter that denied that he even knew Christ, denied that he knew him. And he comes to him and says, do you agape me? And he says, Lord, you know, I phileo you. I love you like a brother. What conviction is that? And he asks him again. He says, Peter, do you love me? First, he said, do you love me more than these? Because he said, all these others will, will, will forsake you, but I'll never forsake you. That was his pledge to Jesus. And he just brought it right back. He says, do you love me more than these? Do you still love me more than these? He says, Lord, you know I love you like a brother. He asks him again, do you love me? Do you agape me? He says, Lord, of course, I love you like a brother. And then Jesus says, do you love me like a brother? Like, do you even love me that much? It's like, and this is just the the kindness of our Lord, isn't it? He comes down to where we are. He deserves our agape. And he sees our weakness. He says, I get it. You don't agape me, but do you at least phileo me? And that was when he, that's when he, he grieved. He saw right then. It's like, oh, Lord, you're asking for more. You're asking for, for, for my decision to follow you. you know, agape is love by decision. You're asking for my commitment. And I can't give you my commitment, Lord. But you know, you know me. You know all things. You know that I want to love you. How many want to love the Lord more? than you do today amen He's, he deserves it doesn't he so we have eros we have phileo we have storge which is family affection and again as we said agape is the love of decision so deciding committed love and so did I hit the wrong button let's try that again out word okay don't need this. So um, if you have your pens, you can write these down. Uh, so I had seven aspects or seven characteristics of the love of God. And the first one I put was love decides. And that was Romans 5, 8, where God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Oh, it's back. Thank you. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In verse 10 of that, of that chapter 5 of, of Romans, it called us enemies. This is love that decides. The Lord determined that he would send his son to die for people that were his enemies. See, the true test of love is when you have to love people that are not lovable. The real real test of love is when you have to love people that you don't like, right? People that are not deserving of your love, they've not done anything to earn your love. They're enemies. And still he chooses to love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So love decides, love also initiates, 1 John 4.10. In this is love, not that we love God, because we didn't. That he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Love also pursues. Uh, Genesis three nine. After Adam and Eve fall in the garden, you know they hear the voice of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. You think God didn't know what they did? Of course He did. He knew everything. And He doesn't just sit at the at the at the at the gate of the garden, at the front of the garden, and just wait. For that disobedient little snotty-nosed Adam to come and, you know, get over here. No, he, he doesn't do that. He calls out to Adam, Adam, where are you? The gentleness in that, Adam, where are you, right? He pursues, even those who don't deserve pursuing. He pursued me when I wasn't worth pursuing. He pursued you when you weren't worth pursuing. It's the love of God. Love grieves, Ephesians 4.30, you, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You can't grieve someone that doesn't love you. You can't grieve someone that doesn't love you. I mean, I'm a parent. You know, how many parents you got, we have in here? Boy, nobody can grieve like a parent, right? When we see our children going astray, that's because we love them so much. We want so much for them, so much more for them than they're settling for. And it breaks, literally breaks our heart, right? Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I longed to draw you, to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. And he weeps because he loves Jerusalem. So love grieves. We can grieve the Lord. Love also gives. John 3.16, we know this one all too well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Love perseveres. Jeremiah 31.3, he says, The Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I always have loved you, and I always will. Right? Romans chapter 8. You know, what, who shall separate us from the love of God? Nothing shall separate us from the love of God. And then seven, love dies to self. First John 3.16, which is really awesome. John 3.16 and 1 John 3.16. Fantastic. By this we know love. Boy, you would think that the Lord really knew what he was doing when he wrote the Bible. <laughs> By this we know love. Because he laid down his life for us. It literally says, this is how, this is how we know what love is. That's what John says. This is how we know what love is. He laid down his life for us. And so we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. See, this is what the fruit of the Spirit produces in our lives a love that decides. A love that decides to love those who are not worthy of our love, those who we'd rather hate. Love initiates. This is God's love but it should be ours as well. We should pursue the lost. We should grieve for those who are dying. We should give until it hurts, sacrificially. We should persevere and press on. And finally we should die to self. 1 John 4:11 says, "Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another." Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this time in your word. We thank you, Lord, that you speak to us. You're always teaching, Lord, even when we're not showing up to class. But we pray that today, Lord, that this, uh, this word has fallen on fertile soil. Lord, that you, Holy Spirit, would do a work in our lives that is recognizable to the watching world. Lord, it takes transformed lives to transform lives. You use people to reach people. There's a lost world out these doors who do not know you and can't even comprehend what you're like. They make up stories in their own minds of what kind of God you are when you are a God of love. Help us, Lord, to be your hands and your feet, your lights and your witnesses, to share this love with those who don't know you so that more will come to know and trust and believe in Christ. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for our attempts to fulfill your law, to follow your command in the arm of the flesh. Lord, forgive us for the respectable sins that we've tolerated and we've accepted and we've allowed to just fester within our lives. We ask, O Lord, that you cleanse us, that you purify unto yourself a faithful church who will love you and serve you until you come for us. Lord, we thank you again for this time. We ask that you bless us as we leave. Bring us here again safely, Lord. Help us to glorify your name in all that we do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.